Welcome to the latest Spotlight brought to you by Connect, the property and construction hub. I'm James Marriott. Today, our guest is Rory Underwood, who's gone from success on the pitch to success in the air and now success behind the desk. Um, Heads up if you're listening to the podcast version of this. We're recording it with an audience as part of our usual networking get-together, so you might hear a few other voices a little bit later on. We'll have a few different questions and stuff like that as well. Rather than just bog standard presentations, we like to give our speakers the full on Michael Parkinson treatment by asking them lots of questions. The different being, I'm not Parky, uh, but I am from the same town as him. So it's pretty much the same thing, isn't it? Uh, Rory, welcome to Connect. Thank you very much. Thanks to be here. It's, it's difficult really to know where to start because you have quite a backstory. Um, but let's go all the way back because a lot of people, of course, will remember you for your uh, rugby career. I should probably clarify uh, rugby union career. 49 tries in 85 uh, caps for England and a very long domestic career. I think it was 15 years nearly at, uh, at Leicester. Um, my expectation is that to have a career in professional sport, that it's likely that that kind of dominated your childhood as well. Is that is that accurate? Was that the case? Um, so rewind. Um, career is a is a loose term in a very generic sense, um, but it wasn't a professional sport when I played. So it's one of the biggest things that people uh, forget because the game now is professional. I was, I was speaking to James earlier on. Uh, he's just come to the end of his playing career. Uh, when I played, the game was an amateur game. The game did not turn professional until uh, 95 and um, officially wasn't allowed to be uh, contracted players until 96. Uh, I retired from England in 96 and I retired from rugby in 99. So uh, when I first played for England in 1984, um, I, I got paid nothing for playing in front of 60, 70,000 people down at Twickenham. Although, as I say, apart from a 12p a mile um, mileage allowance, that was my year. Uh, so, um, so it's the, the best way I describe it to people, because people find it very difficult to realise that. But the best way I describe it now, my job was uh, being a part of the Air Force, as you said, and my hobby was playing rugby. I, we played on a Saturday, virtually all games were Saturdays, uh, except for the odd uh, midweek game. Um, albeit that some of the games I played for England and played Twickenham, but that, that's the way it was in those days. I, I've got to say, you've slightly blown my mind there because I had absolutely no idea. It never even occurred to You're me. You're so that... young, James. That's why. I said, yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll take that. That's fine. Um, that's that's mind blowing. So um, I, uh, presumably, then that's the case for everyone. That that you know, I, I remember yeah, yeah. lots of rugby players so, from the nineties. So, 90s, so they all had I, other jobs. Yeah, I, I played rugby at school. I was I was at school up in Barnet Castle. I'm a Yorkshireman. I haven't got the, the accent like the rest of you got, but. I was uh, born in Middlesbrough. Um, I went to Barney Castle School, which is obviously infamous now for a certain uh, person who remain nameless. Um, <laughs> but um, that's where I learned the trade. I, I learned how to play rugby um, at Barney Castle School. And my alma mater at the time, who was in my same year, same house at school, was Rob Andrew. And we, we've known each other since we were 11. We were both at school at Barney Castle together. And he obviously played most of my career. We played together many, many times. Um, and when I left um, school, basically, you know, I had to get a job and my dream was to fly in the Air Force. I know you want to talk about it later on, but that was the route. And while this was all going on, while I was at um, Barney Castle School, I played for Middlesbrough Rugby Club uh, from 16 until eventually I left to join the Air Force. And that's when I moved down to Leicester Tigers, um, close to Cromwell. And um, that's the way it was. It just carried on. You know, I was like everybody does when they finish university or school, they go and do a job. Uh, and then for a lot of us, we carry on doing our, our chosen sort of sport or profession, you know, that we want to do on a, on a weekend. And that was the way it was. So what, what was that like kind of balancing those two things? Because for me, I kind of think, well, they're, you know, they're quite different things, kind of what you're doing Monday to Friday and what you're doing at the weekend, quite different. But I mean, I guess that's the case for, for anyone. I can't think of a, of a, of a, of a job that you could do Monday to Friday that you think, oh, that makes sense alongside playing rugby at the, at the weekend. Um, to, I mean, when you think of it now, most people think of it as this professional sport and yes, you're training all week. But when we were um, playing then it, it was not that much dissimilar from people that play amateur football or amateur whatever sport, netball, whatever, that they play on the weekends or in the evenings. You know, we used to train 
basically on a Tuesday and Thursday night and play on a Saturday. So I, like anybody else, whether it was me being a, a part in the Air Force, being um, Brian Moore was a solicitor, uh, Rob Andrew was a quantity surveyor, uh, so that quite a few of the guys were coppers. Um, you know, they all did their uh, day jobs and then went to training and then played on a Saturday. That's That was the way it was. Obviously, when you play for England, there's a bit more time away. So uh, in those days, we used to... Um, when I first started playing, we used to train. So my first cap, um, we trained on a Monday night at Starbridge Rugby Club. So everybody had to drive from around the country to Starbridge um, for a, an evening session. And then we met in Richmond uh, at the Bidisham Hotel on Thursday lunchtime to train at Twickenham, or rather it was um, uh, uh, one of the universities uh, just around near Twickenham. Um, uh, Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, and we'd play the match on Saturday, go to the big dinner at uh, Park Lane and Hilton on Saturday night, and then we'd disperse off home on a Sunday, um, back to work on the Monday. And what was it like? It was, and I'll take this, take this the right way, but it, it was normal. That was just my life. I just got used to playing sport on a Saturday because I'd been doing it since I was uh, 16, 17, playing for Middlesbrough. Um, so I got used to playing sport on a, on a Saturday afternoon. Um, and obviously starting work. So that was my, that was my life. When, when you reflect back on, on, on that, and obviously still holding the, the record for, uh, the most number of tries scored for, for England. Um, how do you kind of feel looking back, reflecting on kind of, you know, playing for England, scoring all those tries? How does that feel? I, you know, it's, I've, I've been very fortunate to have been able to, uh, play for my country and played for so long, without a doubt. And I mean, I'm I'm less than a year away from being sixty. And the the frightening thing is is that um, it's something like if anybody can remember me playing in an England shirt, anyone here who's on on watching or even podcasting, you remember watching me play live in, a, in an England shirt. That was twenty six years ago. It was the last time I put an England shirt on. So where's that time gone? And when I reflect back, obviously it just seems like a, you know, I do remember it. And what so it just seems like it seems very surreal in some ways. It seems like it was somebody else. It's like it's not me. I watched, I've been watching the game, the professional game for such a long time. So, uh, season ticket old down at Tigers. So I've seen how the game has developed over those years. Um, I got fond memories, you know, crikey. Uh, playing at Twickenham is one of my highlights. Playing, playing on uh, a Lions tour has been a fantastic experience. All the people I've met over the years, the countries I've visited, um, I've had many, many, many highs. I've had lows as well, many lows. Um, but, you know, without a doubt, rugby has been a massive part of my life, has shaped me as a person uh, to who I am now. Um, and I've made many, many, many friends uh, along the way. Obviously, I, I touched on earlier, you know, I, I remember you playing uh, rugby. There's a lot of information on the internet about your kind of your rugby uh, career. Um, obviously, now the uh, the business that you run, there's a lot of information about, about that as well. There's this this bit, obviously, in the, the RAF, which perhaps isn't quite as well known. So, so talk to us a little bit about about that and what what you've what you've done within the RAF. Um, it is, you know. Most people sort of first images of me playing rugby for England didn't realise that I had a job because, like yourself, thought it was, an, it was a professional sport. Um, and then obviously they find out that I was uh, a partner or Air Force. So, you know, comparisons with Biggles is, is quite a commonplace thing, which, believe me, when I was a kid reading Biggles, I would quite happily <laughs> wanted to be Biggles when I was a kid. Um, it's um, So that's the thing you've got to get the mindset around. When I was going through school... Rugby was not an option as a um, profession. So it was just a thing I enjoyed doing, enjoyed playing with mates or whatever, and I carried on doing. So it was just something I did in my spare time. But um, I basically had an interest in fly. I was, I, it, always, it always stemmed from um, my parents living out in Malaysia. So we used to go back to Malaysia. At the time, I was just going home, but it's three tropical holidays a year. I was flying back to Malaysia from, uh, from, from Barnacasa School. Um, and I always had this fascination about when we're flying as to actually what did you look at the front of the aircraft? Because when you're in, you know, you're in your jet as Pam experience on the way to Spain, you just look out the side window and you see the the terminal buildings whizzing past. But actually, what does it look like when you're actually coming to land or getting airborne? 
And that's what started my fascination with flying. And so um, I joined the CCF at school, at Barney Castle School, went to various camps, and, and I got the book, and I wanted to be a part in the Royal Air Force. My dream was to fly the Jaguar aircraft. Um, and so after a couple of attempts getting in, I got accepted to um, uh, go to um, um, initial officer training at Cromwell back in 1983. Um, and I graduated in June of 1983. And so went through the... Um, the standard route that you do as a as a as a fast jet pilot uh, trainee going through the system. It took me about three four years, um, and I spent uh, eighteen years in the Royal Air Force. Being a pilot in Royal Air Force and going through flying training is, you know, I'll say this myself, even though I got through it. You know, it is a tough. It is a tough. Um, it's not a doggy dog situation. It's very much if you don't hit the min minimum standards, you can very quickly drop off. Um, you know the uh, the process. Every single sortie, you need to have prepared yourself for and get ready for uh, and go and learn. If anything that you haven't learned, you've got to get it right by the next one because they've moved on to the next bit. And so there's a expected rate at which you're supposed to pick up and learn and move on to the next thing because they haven't. Obviously, it's quite expensive. You know, it takes three, four years for us to get through flying training to, to get to be on the front line. And, it, and those days, it was about, you know, four million pounds worth trying to pilot through those three, four years. So it's not, you know, it's not cheap compared to. Uh, training somebody up uh, induction-wise into most companies. So, um, you know, the, the best rise at the top, and that's what they're doing. And it is a real sausage meat factory. And if you don't hit the minimum standards, you are, you know, moved on. And um, so from that point of view, you are constantly under pressure. And, you know, um, I started flying training. I went through officer training. I graduated in June of 1983. Started flying training at Cranwell in August, September of uh, 83. I, I personally, um, I'm not the brightest. I don't have a degree. Um, failed my A-levels. I got the minimum qualifications to join the Air Force. And I really struggled going through the um, ground school uh, at basic flying training at Cranwell. And I got recourse for the for the uh, ground school. Went back and did it again. And then not long after I was going through the, the, the second phase of that, um, just started flying, literally just started flying. And bang, suddenly I get picked to play for England. During my first year of trying to go through uh, basic flying training at Cromwell, I get picked to play for England. And I've suddenly, you know, uh, the whole world suddenly opens. I've been playing for Leicester Tigers and I've been doing quite well, but to suddenly get picked to play for England was a whole different kettle of fish completely. And uh, that Tuesday morning that the, well, it was announced on the Monday morning and uh, basically the press just descended on the airfield uh, on the Tuesday wanting pictures and all sorts. And so I had to have, um, to have to take the, the, not the day off, but I had to spend the day doing lots of press and sort of stuff before playing on the following Saturday. And that's, um, that's in those days compared to what you know it is now with no social media, et cetera, just the written press and the um, TV. So, um, you know, that, that was my introduction to it, it all. So anyway, that just gives you an idea of what it was like uh, when I was starting. And it was a challenge, without a doubt, you know, going through flying training because it's, it's hard work. But the Air Force were outstanding. The Air Force very much, you know, recognised as somebody who was going to be, uh, uh, you know, a PR opportunity and great for the Air Force for somebody like myself going through flying training to have a pilot playing rugby for England. So they were outstanding. They were very good. Those paved the way and made sure that all the squadron commanders and station commanders knew that I was coming onto their station, et cetera, and, and made sure that my life was easier and as minimum obstacles were put in my way. So I've got a lot of time for what the Air Force did for me at the time. Um, I went through the flying training system, so just very quickly, I have to poison death. Uh, about 160, 70 hours uh, basic flying training, which is just, we'll teach you how to fly. That was on the Jet Provost at Cromwell. Uh, I uh, completed that and was sent to Valley. And at Valley, they do the advanced flying training. So now that was when we started flying the Hawk. Uh, so simple things like we were flying at 300 knots um, at low level, at 500 feet, uh, doing the low level stuff. And then when we flew the Hawk, you're now flying at 420 knots, at soon, uh, still, still at 500 feet, but it's you know, nearly twice as faster than it was, or um, 50% faster than it was at, uh, on the Jet Provost. And that's now teaching how to fly in a much more advanced state with the, with the Hawk, because obviously it's much more... Uh, uh, performance-wise, much more, more um, able to do a lot more exciting things, shall we say, uh, than in the um, Jet Provost. At the end of that, I got my wings. I got my wings in um, uh, September of 1985. That's where the Air Force came in. 
they grabbed me from there. And before I finished the course, they sent me down to Chivna uh, to go and start the uh, TAC weapons. So um, the Valley was teaching me how to fly. Now, uh, TAC weapons is where they taught you how to fight. And so down at uh, Chivna was a four or five month course, uh, about 60 hours. Well, that's where I taught how to fly uh, low level uh, in um, more warfare situations. Uh, we fired guns, dropped bombs, uh, and learned how to do air combat, top gun, a la top gun style. Um, and that's what we did down at um, Chivna. And they wanted me to get that done finished so I could finish that because the course finished in January, which then finished in time for the, the Five Nations, as was in those days that started in February, to get me through that. And I started the tornado course uh, in March, April time, I think it was, um, of 1986. Um, and that's where my first um, uh, sort of, you know, I started the tornado course and did about 14 hours, but then failed the tornado course, as we say in, in flying parlance, got chopped. Um, and so I failed that and was sent on to fly the Canberra. So I was sent to fly the Canberra, which is quite an old aircraft down at Witten near uh, Huntingdon, did about... Six years, I was on the on the on the Canberra three hundred and sixty squadron. Got about fifteen hundred hours flying the Canberra. Um, from there, I went back onto the Hawks on a hundred squadron. Flew there for four and a half years, uh, flying a target facilities role, which is, I mean, it's the best job I had. I mean, basically, it's licensed hooliganism at low level. I was, I was basically an enemy target, and so I flew around, and the rest of the air force tried to shoot me down or whatever, and I acted as an enemy. Mm -hmm. So that was my role. That was rather exciting. Um, then I did a three-year ground tour. So from you in the property sector, it's quite interesting because I did a human factors um, training course where I was responsible for introducing human factors into the Royal Air Force. So I did that for three years, which was the embryonic sort of thinking around me going into consultancy. Um, and then my last three years was uh, flying uh, the jet, the, um, the Domini. It's like an executive jet, and that's what we train all non-pilot um, aircrew. So navigators, air load masters, air ops, air engineers, we train them in the back of this. So you need a pilot to fly it. So they do all exercises. Well, I'll just tell you the story about the, the engineers. It's fascinating because that's where I, you know, big time learned around how you have to train within, um, you know, a uh, student and you've got to think ahead. And so as a pilot with the engineers, they're taught in the big aircraft when they go and fly multi-engines. They, they control the, the throttle and the flaps and the undercarriage and stuff. Pilot just flies, which is weird for me as a, as a fast jet pilot. And so I had to tell the student what to do when I came into land. So literally, I just flew the aircraft and he would set the power, he would set the flaps and he would set them in the carriage when I told him to. So you have to think ahead a whole time uh, and you've got to get it right because obviously you're trying to gauge the speed from when you come into the um, circuit about 300 knots to landing at about 120, 130 knots. You've got to slow down, et cetera. Um, and that, that for me was a very big learning curve, um, you know, developing me, not uh, as a learning curve from a mistake point of view in my world. So, um, that brings us to 2001 when I, um, finished my commission, did 18 years in the Royal Air Force and left at the age of 38. Um, so there's a quick whistle top tour of my Air Force career. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that, Rory, because I think what I'm trying to spot is the point where I think, where, where I can see that connection to then go on into business because you know kind of obviously playing rugby then being in the rf i'm not sure there's a typical route into business but but that would strike me as as not really being sort of the typical route that would then go on to you know someone who goes on to to have their own um business so so kind of talk to me a bit about that then when that starts because was it was it teamwork the first business that you were involved yeah in? so that's 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 the obvious one and that's what it stemmed out so from my um playing rugby Sport is obviously a, a metaphor for that with regards to teamwork, et cetera. And from the flying point of view, you know, I think everyone would agree just listening here at the moment that, um, you know, for somebody to go to war, you've got a whole massive team of people around you to get that one person, that one jet to go off to war. So teamwork is a massive thing. And, and the two are slightly different in a military environment from a um, uh, trust point of view, teamwork point of view, it, it is potentially a life or death situation. It is, you know, when I'm flying in close formation, you know, I'm flying with another aircraft six feet wingtip to wingtip, um, doing three, four hundred miles an hour. So it's not the time that you sort of have to think about, you know, I wonder if he's having a good day today, sort of thing. You know, you, you, this is very much about teamwork. And um, the human factor side of it was the bit that sort of brought that into the whole context of how we in the military, in 
highly stressful situations, trying to make, you know, good quality high um, uh, decisions. Um, how do you pull that together to try and make sure that as a team you're trying to perform? And so when I first left, that was pretty much, you know, the whole context of performance from a team perspective. And, I, and I'll be honest and say to you that my, my passion, my whole raison d'etre is around how do you get a whole bunch of individuals to work together as a team? Because I will say straight away, 100% I go into every single business and there's still this sort of sense that, well, just put those six people on that, they'll work as a team. This assumption that just by putting a bunch of people together, they will automatically work as a team is just rife. You know, the All Blacks having a poor run at the moment, but they haven't been number one in the world for 75% of the last 25 years or whatever, just because they turn up and play. They work at it. And so when you look at the Air Force, why are we so good? Why are we respected around the world? Because uh, despite the press that we've been getting in the last uh, few, uh, few weeks, but when we um, have a job to do, especially in a wartime scenario, and I'd say the military, never mind just the Air Force, you know, we train and train and train to be the best at how we work together to try and deliver. It's what we do. And so that's, that was the whole context of what I try to bring into it. Now, obviously, when I started 20-odd years ago, when I left the military, you know, 21 years ago, which is frightening, um, that was my starting point. As I've morphed into recognizing what's really sort of rocked my boat in the context of working with businesses, you know, it's been a long journey. It's been some of the challenges. Um, Pam sort of uh, hit on it. You know, one of the things is what you're saying early on, Jonathan, it's all fine. I said, I'm an accountant. People go, I'm, I roughly know what an accountant does. I'm a, an architect. I, I know what an accountant does. I'm wingman and I help teams. And I'm a service industry. And so, you know, the biggest challenge I have is how just do I describe what I do to help people. And it's been a big challenge for me. And, you know, it's taken a, a long time, but where I am now, having been through that journey, which you're asking me about, James, is having come from the whole context of a team and that hasn't changed. But one of the things I do uh, in the work that I uh, go and work with is, is helping businesses understand how do you get your strategy across to all the people in your organization so they all fully understand what it means for them to deliver on that strategy. Because most organizations I go into, Somebody will espouse, normally, obviously, the MD or the boss or the owner or whatever, that this is our strategy. People go, that sounds nice. But when you go and interrogate, not interrogate, when you go and ask everybody, do you understand, A, what it means, and do you understand what you have to do with your team, with the organization to deliver on it? Most of the time, they don't know. I've got a job. This is what my target is from my line manager. I'll just deliver on that. But the joined up thinking around how we all work together to deliver that strategy is missing. So I still am very much about a team builder. And it's one of the things, you know, I quietly call myself a team builder. But when you say that to most people and people think of a team builder, they think of people running around with brightly colored shirts and doing exercise and stuff, which I, I love doing. And that's great fun. But everybody thinks about that as opposed to. How effective is your team at working within the business to, to deliver on a strategy? And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. So basically what I'm doing now is I'm a strategy consultant and I go into organizations and I enable them to be able to deliver their strategy effectively because a lot of business I go into can't. Brilliant. Love that. Um, by the way, Wingman is a tremendous name for anyone that hasn't figured this out yet. So the relevance being, of course, that you played on the wing when you played rugby uh, in the RAF, aeroplanes have wings. Um, and, you know, with what you're doing going into businesses, just a fantastic um, name. And and I think the fact that uh, the, the name of your business is Wingman probably answers this question, but I want to ask you all the same. Have you had a, a temptation or thoughts about whether or not you want to kind of distance yourself from parts of your past? Because, you know, we spent the first 10 minutes of this talking about rugby. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you must get, oh, that's Rory, the rugby guy, quite a lot, where maybe do you want kind of, oh, that's rugby, Rory, the business guy, a bit more often? Um, to a certain extent, yes, but I don't, I don't have a problem with, People recognizing me from the rugby because that's that's me that's that's what is that is circumstance that is you know um what i've achieved and what i've done so i've got, I've got no problem with that whatsoever but where i do agree with you and it's been it's been a part of the challenge you know if if people 
if people think of me and want to have me to come and help them in their business, and it's all about me and everything's about me, then I'm limited in what I can do as a business in trying to scale and trying to grow. And that's been my biggest challenge. Um, how do I create a proposition that doesn't just require raw into it, delivering it has been the biggest challenge I've been facing over the last um, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. And it's only in the last, um, you know, during the lockdown, actually, that I've managed to, to you know, it's like anything else, um, opportunity uh, can come at strange places. And, you know, the lockdown has, it's given a lot of us a lot of time to be able to reflect and think and um, not necessarily change everything, but be able to try and tweak a few things to try and make um, <clears throat> us go along the journey in a much more effective and efficient way and try and see the light. And so that definitely has happened for me. Um, you know, just being a team builder and just being a leadership and management development, you know, deliverer, um, there's loads of that around the country. There are hundreds and thousands of those around. So what differentiates me from that? Uh, and so going down the strategy there's lots of people who do strategy for people um but actually getting the people to actually engage with how to deliver strategy uh that's an area that i think i can i can create a much greater niche and you know you tell about telling stories 100 percent buy into that jonathan big time you know stories are much more uh, easy to come by stories are much greater to tell from people as to whether that you know that it's coming as being real and um, you get the passion that comes out of the stories when people tell it and it's true. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I tell stories all the time. I tell stories about my rugby. I tell stories about my flying. It, it, it's infused into all the training I do as well as I've been, I've been a consultant for 22 years. So I've got hundreds of stories from my time, um, you know, going to, it's like a tour of Spain. Is that an aircraft? It is Pam, isn't it? We, we for, for, the, for the benefit of anyone that's listening to the podcast version of this, uh, Pam, who's <laughs> on the call with us, is on holiday in, in Spain. Started off in her hotel an hour ago, and now is um, we're not even sure where, but we are we are getting a whistle stop um, tourism. It's like a tourism video, this isn't it of uh, of the resort that, uh, yeah, that very nice. Pam's in. That's incredible. Um, so, where was the question, James? Remind me where we were at there. Um, well, actually, I think I think what you what we were getting into there, and this is what I wanted to ask you next, really, which which was about you know telling us a story. So when when you look back about the uh, businesses yes. that you yeah, yeah. you've worked with, um, what really stands out then from 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 that time? What what when you kind of think back about the businesses that you've been able to help? Tell tell us a story um, along yeah. those lines. I mean, the biggest thing that any of us have in a service industry is is, is um, uh, return on investment is the biggest challenge we all have. You know. Um, especially in the sort of more hysteric type service industry we have, how do you prove? So marketing, PR, um, development, all that sort of stuff is, is much more harder to quantify than it is from, say, an architectural, um, accountancy, uh, legal, et cetera, type stuff, when it's a bit more black and white, a bit more. Um, and so that's always being the biggest challenge. Um, but I know, and everybody will acknowledge, that they know that, a good team working and a good business working together will definitely be more successful than a bad business where people don't work together. People I'll acknowledge that as a, as a given, but obviously the, the, the challenge is by how much do you input to how much do you change people and whether it goes left or right, is going to be the biggest challenge. Um, and I've got so many different stories along the way, you know, from the, the, the bits of work I've done. Um, one I had recently, um, we did a piece of work with a company that helped them through, um, getting their team more in line with their thinking because they were adamant that they'd spoken to their direct reports and said, this is what we expect of you. In the piece of work we did with them and finding out what the senior team felt and the next level um, direct reports, senior managers, uh, it actually became clearer that what they thought they knew was different to what the senior managers thought they knew. And so there was a disconnect. And so it was a big piece of work we did with trying to get them much more aligned both from a point of view of skill set as well as understanding from each other what they need from each other from delivering a strategy. And it, one of the pieces of what we did as well was get, we got all 36 of them away and did that team building stuff. That stuff that people think is a bit sort of, um, you know, it's a fun day away from the office. That 36 was so powerful that when they came back, they started referring to themselves as the 36. And I just had a catch up with uh, the MD. As recently said, 
that was literally the 2019 was just before we went into the lockdown. They were trying to sell the business and, and all sort of it all kicked off for obvious reasons. And the subsequent year was a bit of a challenge. But he said to me, without a doubt, the work that we'd done with that team, both the senior team and the next level down, paved the way for them to get through the lockdown in such in a much more um, uh, aligned, unified way that actually they managed to do a successful sale during the lockdown in 2020, sometime like that. Um, and he said, without a doubt, the work that we did with them was conducive to that happening and it wouldn't have happened otherwise. That's one case in point. Another one I've got is um, I did a piece of work with another big company. They have three, four hundred billion pounds. There were about five, six hundred people working for them. And I did a piece of work with a senior team. It was a quite large team, about 13, 14. I did a piece of work around, you know, just doing a presentation on what's your strategy. And he got, I got two halves of the two teams, two teams of six, seven, to present just a 10 minute presentation of what you felt the strategy was. And at the end of it, the MD, who you just said, look, I've just spent the last year having taken over this business, telling every single person every single day what my strategy was. And when the two presentations were given, they didn't align with what the MD said. And he said he'd been busting his gut trying to do the strategy. So that was a big eye-opener for him to understand. Just because I'm saying it, it doesn't mean people understand, A, what it is, and B, how do I deliver on it? And so that was the, you know, the, uh, the piece of work that I had to go in there and create an understanding of how to do that. So there's a couple of you know, short stories and examples of how you know, um, the impact that we've had from our perspective. Cool. Thank you, Rory. Um, I'm going to open it up to um, to questions shortly. A couple of things that I want to ask you before we um, do that, um, and one is, you know, we we um, I think Jonathan mentioned earlier that he'd seen you um, speak at an event, and you know, I, I'm guessing you do this kind of stuff all the time in terms of like speaking gigs and being kind of a guest at um, at events and stuff like that. Um, what what's the one question that you've always hoped would come up but never has? <laughs> can you come and help my business to pay me lots of money? I mean, no, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's um, the main reason we do a lot of this. There's either the, uh, I just want to share my knowledge and experience or whatever, and there's elements of that. But at the end of the day, we are trying to run businesses. We are trying to um, make people more aware. So brand awareness, either myself or wingman, but also trying to make people understand and aware of what we potentially can do to help other businesses and fundamentally why you're all in this group and this network and what you're doing, as Jonathan described, the four different weeks that you do. It's brilliant. Um, and so from that perspective, it's it's like anything else. I am constantly having to look for new business. You know, Pam was very kind of saying, but I've been successful in growing the business. I have, but I can't rest on my laurels. I still have to go out there and find business. And as a small business, I'm a small business. I'm not... I haven't got, you know, 100 people working behind me. I'm a small business in uh, uh, Lincolnshire, um, on the Lincolnshire, Nottinghamshire border. And I have to constantly go and find more business every, every year. And it takes effort. And of course, I, as anybody will know, if you are the main deliverer, but you are also the main salesperson, then if you don't get that balance right, it causes problems. Because if you're spending all your time delivering, guess what? your pipeline further down the line will start becoming a bit dry. You spend all your time selling and not delivering, you're probably not going to be earning as much as you should be. So therein lies the, um, you know, the the real challenge that any small business has, especially when you're a small business. Just before we open up for questions, Rory, what we haven't talked about yet is what I assume is your career highlight, uh, which is 2001 being on Blankety Blank, presented by Lily Savage. Um, there's a genuine question off the back no, of this, though. No, I would put down me appearing on Hail and Pace sketch doing Stars in Their Eyes, and I turned up as Sonia. Wow. Right. We might. There, there'll be get... a video, there will be a video somewhere. And I'll tell you what, ladies, I have complete sympathy and empathy. Fortunately, I don't have to wear heels. But I wore <laughs> an LBD, and I had to put on her ginger um, uh, hair, obviously. I had the full makeup. And I'll tell you what, all I did most of the time, I had to dance around the stage to her. What was a famous hit? I can't remember now. Oh, I can't remember. I had to sing it. Anyway, so I did do a sketch with uh, Helen Pace doing it and all that sort of stuff. So let's play on that uh, thing. And all I kept on doing was having to pull the long hair out of my lipstick because I kept on sticking to my lipstick. 
I empathise, ladies. <laughs> do you um do you get approached for stuff like that all the time? Like um you know celebrity Big yeah. Brother or going in the jungle? Have you ever had that call? No, 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 no. I've I've had the call of jungle to go and have an interview, and and I think I I scared them off with um, uh, hunting for stuff because obviously we were taught how to do survival in in the military. So I think that was something that they probably didn't want to uh, you know so we can go find food and and feed ourselves. Um, but no, um, I'm as you can tell, I'm not necessarily one for the limelight. I did one or two things like that in the early days, but I don't do anything like that anymore nowadays. Fair enough. We we might ask you to sing a little bit at the end, but we'll we'll come we'll come. You don't we'll want come to hear me that. sing. <laughs> um, I'm going to open it up now for um, for any questions from anyone that's here. Um, I know, Sean, you had a, a couple of questions that you wanted to uh, to ask. I did, yeah. I, by the way, I've just pulled it up on YouTube, so I know what I'm doing between half eleven and uh, twenty to twelve now. So that is very sad. Sharon. <laughs> that is very sad. Can I say? Um, I, I've just uh, uh, taken away something from there, turning strategy into reality. So uh, thanks for for sharing that, um, Rory. My my business is all about leadership. Uh, I work with a company called Utility Warehouse, which helps other people uh, develop a secondary income, a bit like uh, um, uh, on a part time basis. So it's it's full of volunteers, if if that makes sense. And uh, what we're focused on at the moment is building a community, um, creating friendships, um, and it's obviously changed throughout lockdown. And I just wondered, um, and you've touched on this already. Um, what what thing or things did you do to rally the troops and to get more people buying into the uh, um, gaining more momentum in the in, in the business? You know, with the strategies that you did there, or you know, to build the community and make things tighter moving forwards. You're talking about my business. You're talking about business I go and work with, which obviously are similar. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's the same, really. I think sport. There's so many analogies that you've obviously taken from sport yeah. in, into business. Well. But- there's one thing you the one, the one thing the one thing I say to all business I go into, I say this virtually every time I go to and I say this in speech. I'm sure that uh, Pamela Sage has heard me say this so many times. If if everybody in a business, however big or small, you know, most speaking, would actually effectively communicate with each other, I'd be out of a job. Full stop. But thankfully, people don't, so I've still got a job. But, you know, the number of times I go into organizations and fundamentally, it's amazing how when you get one, two or more people together and talk about uh, either an issue or about this bit of strategy or about how they're supposed to be working together or whatever. Oh, didn't realize that. I mean, I'll give you another story. So I love stories. You know, I did a piece of work with Messidarity. This is a long time ago. So most of them are left there, but I don't know. And it was about 27, and it was from um, European companies, you know, Mestati, they do um, bits of um, uh, aircraft, so flaps and the carriages and stuff like that um, for Airbus and, and and the like. And we got, I got the senior team together, the top 27 is part of the business. And one of the pieces of work I did was getting them into their functional areas, because one of my biggest gripes is that all businesses functionally do not work well with each other. Functional relationships is just, it's poor. Um, so I put them into that area. So it's a senior management team, sort of sports services, ops, sales, engineering. I can't remember what it was. It's about six or seven of them. And I just to be just a simple uh, physical exercise. We say, okay, you've got the opportunity to give some feedback. So of the other departments, what what can they do for you to make your life so much more easier? So it's a chance to say, can they stop doing that? Can they do this or whatever? So it's a bit of a, a, a moan sheet. So I did that, and they they reported back. And one of the things that um, doesn't make a difference, but so engineering set of ops was uh, that report two six five you send me. Can you send that through to me in Excel spreadsheet? Because you send it through to us in Lotus Notes, and we have to convert it into Excel spreadsheet for us to do what we need to do in our system. And there was a loads of other stuff that was. Then obviously the second question, those that facilitate will know. So it's okay. So you've heard all that. What are you going to do for the other departments to make their lives easier? Because they've asked for this. So we went through all that, and then Ops said to engineering, uh, yeah, sure, that's no problem. We can, uh, because basically we convert it from uh, Excel spreadsheet into Lotus Notes to send to you anyway. They work in the same Plymouth building, mm. but nobody had gone to say, can you not do that, or can you change that, or whatever. This is a multi, multi-million pound business. Go figure. 
Madness. So communication, sorry, your question. So yeah. um, communicate as much as you can. There's certain things you try not to because of um, financial um, you know, need or whatever, but I try and be as open as I can with all the people in my business. I'm in a small business, so you know, in my office here, uh, there's there's a pot of six, seven tables. Um, but when I go and talk to organizations, it's trying to get them to understand how they need to communicate in the most effective way in the different levels. So try and understand how a strategy percolates down, down through an organization such that each level knows what that means. Each level understands what they're supposed to be doing and how that percolates down. Because if you don't do that, how can you possibly expect cross-functionally people able to work and operate in the way you want them to at different levels? Basically, we just breed silos in our country. So there you go. Hmm. That's really useful. And one of the things that I've noticed is uh, by sharing my vision where people fit into uh, where I'm going, people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. We've had a lot more buy-in as well. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it's in line with what you're saying there. So there's, there's, two, there's two things there. One is a vision vision type strategy, which people buy into and they have a sense of purpose and they, they drive, and that's great. But then you've also got the more practical strategy of how do I get my business to earn more money and grow and be bigger and bring more people into it. And there, you've got to be able to get people to understand what they tangibly, what activities do you expect people to do? What do you actually expect that person to do with those other people and that team to do with other teams? You can't tell them to do everything. You can't sit there and say, you need to do that, you need to do that. You, you have to divulge your strategy in a way that each level of management understands what they need to do and how to uh, manage that uh, level of activity. Okay. So what I find, boss says, this is our strategy. Senior team go, okay, buy into that. We like that. But straight away, I've got six or seven people that go away. Okay, that's a strategy. For me in HR, that means this. For me in sales, that means this. For me in operations, that means this. For me in this business unit, it means this. So straight away, I've now got seven interpretations of what the strategy is. But more importantly, I've got seven versions of the strategy, which is important for me because guess what? I'm assessed and judged on my ability to hit that target. So I don't care about anybody else. I'll just hit this target. So I've shaved up the um, strategy into a silo and I've got a target to hit. So straight away, you're creating that. Guess what happens when those seven people go to talk to their departments? This is our operations part of the strategy. This is what I do. That's your target. That's your target. So you just cascade this siloed mentality all the way down the organizations. And so when the boss looks out and goes, why isn't my business working as efficiently as I can do? It's because there are silos all over the business. And so cross-functionally, we are just poor across uh, most industries I go into. It's, it's, it is terrible. It really is. Uh, never mind the quality and ability of people in the context of management and leadership again, is very poor. So I laud you for what you're trying to do because the more we can get more management leadership out there and making management leaders, because what we're trying to do is we give them a strategy and say, go and do this. And then we've got poor managers and poor leaders that don't know how to do it. Combined with, I'll just do my job and I'll hit my target and I'll get promoted. And that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. As opposed to how do we get all 500 of us to understand what part I play in the bigger picture to deliver our strategy? And one of the biggest questions I always ask, which annoys the hell out of anybody that I go and do my, my consultancy work, was how do you know? I've told them the strategy. They know what they're doing. How do you know? It annoys the hell out of people. Brilliant. Quite rightly. That's great. Thanks, Rory. Thanks very much. No, pleasure. Any more questions from uh, from... Anyone? I don't think there's any in the. We scared people off. I've been lecturing. With, Sorry, uh, Sharon. I didn't mean to come no. around like that. Michaela. Then, then whatever. So absolutely. Brilliant. Hi, Michaela. Hello, um, Rory. I would love to know if you have one particular case study that stands out to you. That, and for what reason it stands out to you? Like, is it the impact that you've made within a business, or is that like, is there one that you kind of pinpoint? Well, fairly recently, I mean, there's another one that's an industry that I just thought about before, but there was the MD I talked to you about with regards to the strategy, and they, they all didn't talk to her. He's another part of the business he had, another big business, another £400 million business, uh, 600 people. And they were a bit more of the cash cow of this big, huge group. 
And uh, so I came to do a piece of work with them. And uh, they thought they were high-performance team because they were a cash cow. They were making money. So they thought they were a high-performance team. By the time I got to end of day one of my two-day workshop, without me asking them a question or without me saying, you know, do you think you're a high-performance team? I just did a reflections, you know, piece of the round off the end of the day. And virtually all of them said, we're not a high-performance team. We thought we were because we were getting our targets and being successful. But actually, as a team, we weren't. And so one of the challenges I give to businesses, which, which was epitomized at that, that point, is how do you know the success of your teams in your business is because of them working as a team as opposed to in spite of them working as a team? And I've challenged hundreds of business leaders and not one of them can answer that question. Because it goes back to that fundamental bit, how do you know? Because there's a difference between a team that's delivering a set number or exceeding it, but how do you know that team is actually working its optimum to deliver that? And that's half the challenge. So, you know, people talk about, can you can you be a high-performance team if you come um, uh, 16th in the Premier League? No, because you're not successful. Yeah, but... You know, if um, Bournemouth, who got thrashed 9-0 by Liverpool the other day, managed to come 16, they'll be happy because they haven't been relegated out of the, the Premiership. And actually, they have overperformed in that small way to be able to get the 16th. Whereas you look at a team that comes second, third or fourth, you think that's really good. But actually, how the team performed as that team at the time, they haven't performed. And that's the bit I try to get through to people. The whole context of, People think about the what a lot of the time. They think about what I've got to do as opposed to the how. They whinge and moan about the how, but they don't spend time working out how to get that best and most efficient and effective how. So it goes back to the teamwork that we talked about earlier on about you know my time from the military and my time from uh, the Air Force, um, um, uh, military and the rugby. You know, good teamwork massively has an impact on how you deliver and so there was a perfect example and the piece of work we carry on doing to finish off that case study is that they recognize that and i tell you what they were like sponges they're, they're one of the best you know some of them were a certain age should we call where you you start thinking will they actually change their spots or not but fair play to them they've tried and you know they've got a stage now where that level they've started getting it they've, they've got the context you know um how do you measure whether strategy is being delivered? So one people think, and some companies think there's a strategy, that's our target, say, so you know, one pound for sake of argument, okay? Well, how does each person in that senior team feel if we don't hit the one pound? Is that because sales didn't deliver and operations spent too much money? HR, don't care, I'll just carry on doing my job. One of the things we, piece of work we did by the end of it was, they all actually looked at that strategy. They looked at how each of them on that senior team, like leadership team, contributed towards achieving that one, that one pound, delivering that one pound. And actually, by the end of the piece of work we did, all of them recognized how they each contributed to that one pound target at the end of the year. So when, we, when I asked them, how do you know whether you deliver on that? They now know. And they now know that they hit 99p, they collectively will take the hit not sales and deliver or whatever. And that's a massive difference because that now creates a much more joined up thinking around how the, the team works. The piece of work we're now doing moving forward is, okay, so the challenge for you is how do you then uh, translate that down to the next level? How do you then um, get the right language, communication, management style to get the next level? Because the other thing you tend to find is most people tend to do, um, without realizing, tend to be quite a directing style. And so what happens is everybody manages a level down too far. Some businesses, two levels down too far. And so what happens is you keep suppressing people down and they just basically just end up being told what to do. So in trying to overcome that, we've been trying to get them to think, right, stay at your level, empower your people and delegate. And some people find that very difficult because people have been successful and get promoted because they're successful, not necessarily because they're the best manager or best leader. 
I'm sure everybody's heard the phrase, the best salesperson doesn't necessarily make the best sales uh, manager. And so people get promoted on success as opposed to their ability to be able to manage. And so therefore, we are promoting mediocrity. And a lot of businesses I go into, mediocrity is acceptable, which is, again, another sad thing. And uh, so how do you expect an organization to deliver at a certain level if your ability of your managers and leaders are not going? So the piece of work we're doing with this um, that we're talking about is trying to get them to understand how to lead at a higher level that they're supposed to be at as directors of the business, as opposed to first-line managers. And a lot of people find that very hard. They find it very hard to let go. And for some reasons, it's, it's quite understandable because they've done it before. They know how to do it. They're just telling people how to do it. It's that old thing, you know, it's quicker for me to tell someone how to do it than it is for me to just let them go and do it because they might do it different from the way I do it. People will solve things slightly different from the way you do because that's the way they think they operate. They have to solve it exactly the same way as you do. Um, and so, you know, anybody who's got kids that teach them how to cycle, it's that when do you let go? And that sort of stuff, that's the real big challenge. Um, and trying to get the right environment in your business where you release people's potential and allow them to flourish um, is the biggest challenge any leader has got. Rory. It wasn't quite a case study, but hopefully I, I fluffed around enough to make no, it sound no, like it's, it's really insightful, really insightful. Okay. That's brilliant. I have Thank six you. million more questions, but I'm not <laughs> going to go there. Well, I was going to say, I think I think we could happily chat all day long, but uh, we have run out of time, sadly, so we're going to have to uh, wrap it up there. Rory, some really interesting, fascinating insights today. Um, thank you for joining us. It's been a it's been a real pleasure having you. Thank you very much. We'll have another great guest next month. If you'd like to find out more about Connect Spotlights or any of the networking meetings we run, there's four different formats throughout each month. You can get all the information you need and the links in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next month.